Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series on church history. If you would like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Good Peanuts comic strip on church history from the likes of the Browns. Uh, Charles Schultz here, this is Sally talking to her brother Charlie Brown, and says, when studying church history, you have to go back to the very beginning. Our pastor was born in the year 1930, right? Because that's when all church history starts, the year that your pastor was born, right? I know it wasn't a 30s birth, more like an 80s birth, but I don't know, uh, might be some not too far away from that. As Christians, we can get stuck in what I called last week historic amnesia. Even though the church was birthed at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, that was the beginning of a new thing that God was doing in his program of salvation, in his redemptive history. Even though it was born back then, the years 180 through 2200 and 2022 are really, they're a giant blank for many people. And as a result of that, we suffer from three things. Vulnerability is number one. We are vulnerable to the latest fads and trends that are happening in the Christian marketplace. Unfortunately, you can say that phrase. We can be guilty of chronological snobbery, that if it's new, it's automatically better. We also suffer from a failure to contextualize, to see theology in the context in which it was birthed from. Attempting to do theology apart from a general knowledge of church history is like a hiker without a map or a pilot without a compass. Chances are those hikers and those pilots will get to the destination that they want to get to, but in order to do that, they're probably going to run into a lot of dead ends. They're going to waste a lot of time, and most often, somebody eventually ends up getting hurt. You might say, Jared, this is great. I love church history, but can't you just teach me the Bible? Isn't the Bible sufficient for every sermon that you would ever do at Tulsa Bible Church? And the answer to that is absolutely, yes, it is. But how do you know that we should be teaching the 66 books of the Bible that you have in your Protestant canon of of Scripture? That question is not um, biblical. It's not um, ecclesiological. Ecclesiology isn't going to answer that question. That question is going to be answered through church history. Jared, why are there so many churches in Tulsa? Why is there such a big influence from the ORUs and the Rhema Bible churches of the world and and everything that's happening across our city right now? That answer is not biblical. It's not necessarily theological. It's historical. Knowing church history is is like being a farmer who smartly puts up a fence around his property. One man has said, before you just go and knock over a fence, understand why it was put there in the first place. If we don't understand how we got here, we run a high risk of making things worse than they are or what they could be. Every year in October, I intentionally stop the sermon series that we're doing, and we talk about church history. And the reason that we do that was because in the year 1517, on October 31st, was the day that Martin Luther hammered his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, launching what is now called the Protestant Reformation. Last week, we saw some very important things on church history, and I want to build on those this week. 
We saw the doctrine of the Trinity, and very important hairs were beginning to be split in the history of the church. One tiny Greek letter made the difference between you being biblical or you being heretical in your theology. Have you ever met a Christian who's got the same Bible that you have, he worships the same Jesus that you worship, even goes to a like-minded church that you go to? But on some foundational issues, there is a large amount of disagreement between you two. In, in AD 400, there was a, a French theologian, his name was Vincent of Lorenz, and he said, the church is going to be in a world of hurt if constantly theologians and pastors come up and innovate theology. Our responsibility isn't to be innovators and creators of theology. Our responsibility as pastors is to take the biblical text, to take systematic theology, to take the things that people have taught us in the past, to pass that torch of orthodox evangelical theology on to the next generation and simply to flesh out what's already there. He said a, a church that consistently creates and innovates theology is in danger of losing it. And so he created a, what was called the Vincentian Canon, of orthodox theology. How do you know if what you believe is orthodox, rightful in its teaching? He gave you three criteria. Number one, he said, is it ecumenical? Is it believed by everyone that would call themselves a believer at all times? Number two, is it from antiquity? Has it been held in the church in the past? When anytime somebody says, and they come up and they say, Jared, I see something different in the biblical text. I've never seen this before. My response is typically, well, let's go read some more people because it's probably out there somewhere. And if you find something that nobody has ever said before, that's usually an alert to danger more than it is a good thing. Is it ecumenical? Is it from antiquity? Meaning, has it been believed always? And number three, his third canon was, is there consent among theologians? that have accepted the truth of it. This definition of orthodoxy is that which has been believed everywhere, always, by all. And the church's job is simply to affirm and confirm those truths. Orthodox evangelical theology are the hills that we die on. They're called orthodox because they are ortho, they are correct, they are right in their doxology in their presentation of what we praise and believe about God. How did they produce the content of what is orthodox? Anybody know the, the Latin word for I believe? Nobody, you guys need to teach Latin to your kids more often. It's credo. They created creeds. And the ancient ecumenical creeds of the church came to be these entities and these statements that were passed down to establish that which was orthodox. We read about it in the Nicene Creed of 325 AD, in the Nicene-Constantinople Creed of 381, that confirmed and affirmed what we believe about the Trinity of God, even though Trinity is not a word that you're going to find anywhere in Scripture. We distinctly believe in a Trinity, and that has been passed down to us by God through church history. Last week, we saw one man who revolutionized Christianity in the Roman Empire. His name was Constantine I, or Constantine the Great. 
What he did was he legalized Christianity in A.D. 312. He established the Byzantine Empire in the East, established what would then what would become a split between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. He made Sunday an official holiday. Why we have off today from work is thanks to good old Constantine. The clergy and churches had major tax benefits because of Constantine. You saw the beginning of church buildings through this emperor of Rome. There was a combination now of church and state. And with peace throughout the empire for Christianity, you could build a way. The church went largely from suffering to subsidized by the taxpayer's money. Are you going to see Constantine in heaven? I, I don't know. Either, and it's not for me to know anyway, uh, either he was radically converted by the grace of God and he understood the true gospel, or he was a brilliant politician and emperor. One of the two. Um, and it's really easy to say this, but extremely hard to live it. A non-persecuted church is not always a blessing for Christianity. Sometimes persecution and throughout the ages has been one of the things that has been a true blessing to purify the true church and true believers always and everywhere. In peaceful times, politics and power often poison the church. It wasn't long after Constantine that the church actually started persecuting non-believers. The early church suffered from persecution. Thousands of Christians died for the faith. The tables turned and the Christians started persecuting non-Christians. There's an emperor by the name of Theodosius who said this, we command, <clears throat> command that those persons who follow this rule of Christianity shall embrace the name of Catholic Christians. And you today, if you go to Tulsa Bible Church, we probably wouldn't fellowship really well with a Catholic Christian, capital C, Roman Catholic Christian, when the early church started, we probably would have. Uh, the Catholic there was universal church. Uh, to understand how the Catholic church came to be what it is, it was really a, Tommy Nelson describes it as a snowball effect. It grew over the years and became the entity that it is today, but it wasn't always that way. Theodosius says here, the rest, however, whom we adjudge demented and insane. If you are not a Catholic Christian, you are demented and insane, according to this emperor, and shall sustain the infamy of heretical dogmas. Their meeting places shall not receive the name of churches, and they shall be smitten first by divine vengeance, and secondly, by the retribution of our own initiative. And the own there speaks of the church and the emperor, who's going to make sure it happens. In 390 AD, you guys, are you guys... Uh, kind of taken away by athletes in today's generation. It's like, we don't have kings and queens, we don't have a monarchy here in the United States, and so we make them in our culture. A lot of times, athletes become royalty in the United States. It was the same way in the early church. In 390 AD, there's a charioteer in a Greek city who was accused of homosexual practices. And so the governor had him thrown into prison and the people loved this guy so much because of his entertainment value that they demanded that he be released and even killed the governor who sent him into prison. The emperor was so shocked and appalled that the people would do that. The very next chariot race, he stationed Roman soldiers at all the exits. He waited until the event started, 
and he locked all the doors. In a span of three hours, over 7,000 Thessalonians were killed by the sword because he wanted to legislate Christianity. You cannot legislate the gospel. You cannot legislate the Holy Spirit working on the hearts of people. And often as it happens, the victim can become the victimizer. And it is an ugly, ugly stain in the history of the church that we actually persecuted those who are non-Christians. Very positive side of the early church. The early church not only answered the question of the Trinity, it also answered one of the most undeniable, distinguishing questions that we could ever ask about Christianity in the first place, and that is this. Who is Jesus Christ? What is our Christology? Bruce Shelley says this. is very interesting. As far as I know, Islam has not Muhammadology. Buddhism does not have Buddhology. But Christianity has a definitive section of theology that we call Christology, and there's a reason why. No other religion on the planet promises salvation through its leader. If you're a Buddhist, you're not saved because of what Buddha did. You're saved if you stay on the path and keep on the path of enlightenment and attain nirvana. If you're a Muslim, you're not saved because of what Muhammad did. You are saved and you are with Allah in heaven if you attain the five pillars of Islam. If you're a Christian, you're saved because of who Jesus is and what he did for you. You never attain life with God on your own power. It is granted to you as a free gift of God based on your faith. It's what makes Christianity good news and distinguishes Christianity from good advice or picking yourself up by your bootstraps or working really hard to earn your way to heaven. If only the greatest minds and the philosophers of the modern period would have understood this question, who is Jesus? We would have saved ourselves from a thousand lesser evils. When you turn the pages of history, in the late 1800s, a bunch of really intelligent professors in England gathered together to figure out who this Jesus really was. It was called the quest for the historical Jesus, and here's what they did. They put the greatest minds, the most brilliant pastors and theologians together, and they started marching through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they went through each story, and they made a comparative study, and they asked themselves, which stories are real and which stories were not real? Which stories actually happened at the time of Jesus and which ones were a fabrication, a myth, maybe even a dream that was experienced by the disciples? It was called the quest for the historical Jesus. And since that time, there's been two other ones. The first historical quest, they went back through the Gospels and looked at everything. The second historical quest wasn't from England, but it was from Germany. It was about 60 years later. And they came up with the same answers that they had always come up with, the same uh, questions that were plaguing their minds, but they again repeated history in an effort to figure out who is this person, Jesus. The third quest happened not too long ago, 1980. They studied deeply into the Jewish and Palestinian background of Jesus Christ, his historical setting, what really took place in Israel not that long ago. Have you ever heard anyone say, I like your Jesus, but he was just a good moral teacher. He gave me good principles. He gave me good practices. I like how he healed the sick. 
but I have a really hard time with a man actually being God. I can't get there in my theology. I don't believe in people that float in the air and walk through walls. And your Jesus claims to do both of those things, right? C.S. Lewis dealt with this in Mere Christianity. He got a great chapter. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that is the one thing you must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on level with a man who said he was a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell himself. But you have to make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or he was a madman or someone else. And ever since the history of the church, from the very beginning, doubters have stated one of two things about Jesus. Either Jesus was really God, and therefore he was not really man. Or Jesus was really man, and therefore he was not really God. Enter on the scene a man by the name of Athanasius. And I know Kinsey's pregnant right now. Anybody else pregnant? Athanasius would be a wonderful name for your kid. <laughs> this guy was a stud through church history. Casey, Casey, you can change your name to Athanasius if you wanted to. Uh, I would support that. Athanasius was most well known for his confrontation of the Arian heresy that we talked about last week. He was most, one of the most significant defenders of the faith in the early church period. Remember, Arian said that there was a time when the sun was not. The sun, S-O-N, eternal son of God. There was a time when the sun was not. The sun was begotten in time. He was actually a created person. He was a created thing. Athanasius, Athanasius had very little time for Arius. He says, if you believe the sun was created, you have two major problems. First, your problem is soteriology. Everyone agreed universally that only God can save. Only God can save. Man cannot save man. God has to, alone has to break the power of sin and grant everlasting life. No creature, in other words, can save another creature. Only the creator can redeem his creation. So, is Jesus Christ Savior and Lord? If so, he cannot be a created thing. Second, as Christians, we worship and pray to Jesus Christ. And we are commanded over and over again not to worship anything that's created, but we worship the Creator alone. To do otherwise is to commit idolatry, one of the worst and most central and foundational sins throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. Athanasius was such a Christological, theological stud that he came up with something called the Athanasius Creed. And if you wanted to follow along with this, go look this up online. This is thick in its richness and its history to understand the person of Jesus Christ and also the deity of Jesus Christ. He said, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, another of the Holy Spirit, but the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreate, the Son uncreate, the Holy Spirit uncreate. 
He goes on, he says, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the Holy Spirit incomprehensible, the Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. But we don't confuse, we don't separate the deity of Christ from the humanity of Christ. They are not three eternals, there is one eternal. They are not three to be separated and kept separated, they are three distinct, but they are one in essence. The three heretical teachings that emerged in the early church were all basically solved and dealt with through these great councils and creeds of the faith that the early church came up with. The first Christological heresy was Apollinaris, who said that if Jesus really did the amazing miracles that he did, there is no way that he was human. And this guy was a pastor in Laodicea. Have you ever heard of that city in the New Testament before? He denied the humanity of Christ. The second uh, grave heretical teaching was that from Nestorius, who's a famous, famous teacher in Antioch, who became a bishop in Constantinople, the head of the Eastern Church that Constantine established. He taught loudly and boldly on the humanity of Christ, but he wasn't very strong on the deity of Christ. Nestorius escaped the church authorities and actually fled to Persia. And today you can find an Nestorian church that has spread through India, through Asia, through parts of China, and even here in the United States. There's an Nestorian church. Google it. You'll find that there's like 25,000 of these guys out here. Eutyches was the third heretical teacher, as a spiritual leader of a monastery. He combined the deity and the humanity of Christ so strongly it is said that humanity was absorbed into his deity. One of, the, one of the very stalwart voices for the early church was an apologist, and his name was Origen. He was a pastor and a teacher in Alexandria of Egypt, which was one of the five main hubs of the early church at that time. And he coined an English term that goes something like this, Jesus Christ is the perfect God-man. His deity not separated from his, his humanity, his humanity not separated from his deity. They are perfect, united together in what was called the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. There was a perfect union between the divine and the human, and it was met in Jesus. Origen was so influential in the early church that the Roman Empire at the time of persecution said, if we're going to kill Christianity, we got to kill that guy. And for three years, day in and day out, they tortured him. Once he was released and they stopped torturing him, he ended his life early because of the infliction of pain that he experienced. As a result, two, two councils were gathered after the Nicene Creed and the Constantinople Creed. There was a council in Ephesus in 431 A.D. that dealt with Nestorianism. There was a council in Chalcedon that dealt with Eutychianism. In Chalcedon, they concluded this. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, a rational soul and body, 
co-essential with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to his manhood. In all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. And in these latter days for us and for our salvation, he was born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God. Why did Jesus come down to the earth in the first place? Why did God send his son? For us and for our salvation. According to the manhood and one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and in one subsistence, not parted, not divided into two persons, but over in the same Son, the only begotten, God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us. That's a mouthful from Chalcedon. And so, the early church against Arius, they affirmed that Jesus was truly God. Against Apollinaris, the church confirmed that Jesus was truly man. Against Eutyches, the church affirmed his deity and humanity. They were not diminished. Against Nestorius, Jesus was not divided. When someone asks you this question, how is it possible that you believe in the God-man, Jesus Christ? The answer is something like this. I have no idea how it happened. I can't make sense of it in any way. It is a great mystery of theology and of truth that every Christian who truly believes in Jesus Christ for salvation has to ultimately hold. We believe in the ecumenical councils that predate us by over 1,500 years, that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, the two natures of the deity and the humanity perfectly combined in a hypostatic union. And you go to the pages of history and to the pages of Scripture to affirm it. Why is this so important to understand as a church? Number one, right theology and right Christian living starts with having our doctrines in order. Right theology, according to Scripture, can be distinguished from those that are absolutely wrong by understanding really three things. If you can get your mind and heart and understanding around these three things, you can have a really good understanding of Christianity and how it's distinguished from every other religion on the planet. Number one is the Bible. What is the Bible? Number two, salvation. And number three, the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you can get people to answer those three things, you will get down to an orthodox theology pretty quick if you know the right answers for them. Number one, what do you believe about the Bible? Is the Bible inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient to live a godly life that honors the Lord Jesus Christ? That will distinguish you from almost every other religion in and of itself. What do you believe about salvation? Do you believe it's by grace through faith, or do you believe it's some, some kind of way that you can contribute to your salvation? It'll be by works. Number three, who is Jesus Christ? The early church was so consumed with that question. They put their answer in writing for the generations to come. They confirmed it and affirmed it with hundreds and hundreds of pastors and theologians. And they established, again, that which was orthodox. 
In order to save man, God had to become man. Think about James chapter 2. Even the demons believe and shudder, right? Is James arguing for that the demons are saved in that passage? No, he's saying Jesus came to die for humanity, not for angels or demons. He came to die for humanity, so he himself had to become a human to save humans. Have you found Hebrews chapter 2? Look down at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, same humanity, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Colossians 2.9 says this, in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Turn back to Acts chapter 4. Look at verse 12. One of the most central passages of Jesus and salvation through all the Old Testament. Acts 4 verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christ, the Son of God, existed from eternity. He shared eternal attributes with the Father. His works were the works of God. In the Gospel of John, he who has seen my works has seen the works of the Father. As sinners, we have a, we have a very interesting bend when we approach life. We tend to turn away from the creator above and turn to created things below. For our deepest hope, our significance, and the answers to our deepest problems, we find ourselves turning away from the creator and turning toward the created. We think that we really need a new idea, a new philosophy, a new principle, a new tactic, something that will get us through this aspect of what we are going through life right now and struggling with. We look to people to cure our problems. We look to possessions to cure our happiness. And when we do, we tell ourselves that we have finally, finally found the key. We have finally found the solution. Shed light on the one thing that's going to make the ultimate difference, that's going to change everything for us. We finally found the answer to our deepest problems. And ultimately, we become experts in replacing the king with a thing. And it happens over and over again, even as Christians. The reality is that true hope, true peace, true comfort, and happiness can only be found in a person who is also deity, 100% God and 100% man. The reality is that we need to take our eyes off the things that are in front of us and focus on the things that are above us a Christology that is deeply anchored in church history, that is clear and thorough on the person of Christ and the deity of Christ is necessary to have a great theology of Christ. And everything else will be influenced by this centerpiece of your theology. If your Christology is off, everything else will be off because of it. What you believe about the Bible, what you believe about end times, what you believe about the Holy Spirit, what you believe about spiritual gifts, what you believe about the church, 
Everything else is influenced if you don't have a good, centered, theological, orthodox understanding of who Christ is, what he came to do, and what he will do in the future. The early church knew that. And they took time after time, council after council, to flesh it out in detail for us. He is, after all, our living hope. Everything starts with Jesus and finishes with Jesus, Christ, the Son of God. He is the one true God. Next time, I want to encourage you to come back. Uh, I've got a, a special speaker next week. One of our pastors on staff is going to come up and teach a little bit about our confession of Jesus Christ from 1 Timothy chapter 3. And it says something like this, great is the mystery of godliness. And it talks about who Jesus is as one of the early church confessions that they came up with. We're going to also talk about the week after that, how the monks preserved Christianity throughout the ages. We're going to talk about a guy, Augustine of Hippo. Have you heard of this guy? Not to be confused with another Augustine who brought the gospel to England later on after that. Augustine of Hippo, if you, one church historian has said this, if you were going to watch his story on a movie, it wouldn't be rated R, it'd be rated X. Augustine of Hippo was a life, a man whose life was totally transformed by the grace of God. And he had some ugly sins in his past, but God used him miraculously so much so that if you're a Catholic, you appeal to Augustine. If you're a Protestant, you appeal to Augustine. He influenced theology on both sides of the aisle. He was a, an amazing man. Talking about church history without talking about uh, Augustine would be like talking about the Cleveland Cavaliers without mentioning LeBron James. Or, uh, let's see, what other athlete sport could I bring out? Uh, talking about the Alabama Crimson Tide. Oh, man, so close. They're so close. <laughs> We're going to talk about how the Catholic, this is one of the, one of the biggest questions that churches face and what they want to know about church history. How did the Catholic Church become the Catholic Church? Like, like what started that whole thing off? And actually, you're, you're probably going to discover if you and I were around living at the time of Pope Gregory the Great, um, we, might, we might have been Catholic ourselves. This guy single-handedly looked into, looked into the army enemies that were right in front of him and said, come on, bring everything you got. I'm going to trust God through this. And it was, it was an amazing thing that he did. He was charismatic. He loved people like crazy and had an unbelievable influence on the church. We're going to talk about that guy, talk about uh, Pope Leo, Pope Gregory, and how the Catholic Church started, and then we'll end it by going to the, to the Reformation of, of 1517. All right, let's pray, and uh, we'll be done. Father in heaven, just thank you so much for um, a legacy of Orthodox Christianity that you have established through the early church, through pastors and theologians who gathered together to do theology as a community. And I pray that, that we would be a reformed church that is continually reforming, continually going back to the text of Scripture, uh, challenging our assumptions and our thoughts with truth 
and doing so together as a community. We thank you for the, the peaceful times that we have to do this, and we will be grateful also for the persecution that we will face in the future. Lord, I thank you that throughout the ages, you have used difficult things to purify your church. I thank you that you have used very faulty, sinful men and women uh, to pass down the things that we believe and to preserve a true Christianity throughout the ages. We are beneficiaries of that. I ask as we continue this sermon series that, as always, our hearts and our affections will be turned to Christ, our Lord and Savior, the perfect 100% God, 100% man, who came down to the earth to die for our sins, for us and for our salvation. He took on human flesh that he might save humans, including me, including every true believer who has placed their faith in him. And it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen. Amen.